we come now to chapter 14 of Paul's letter to the Romans. Chapter 14, which is really the third chapter of applying the gospel. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul is explaining the gospel. And in chapters 12 through 16, Paul is now applying the gospel. And the application of the gospel thus far in chapters 12 and 13 all fall really under the, the heading or the theme of love. Loving one another within the body of Christ, uh, loving our neighbor, loving our enemies, loving those who persecute you, loving um, our neighbors as ourselves, and as he closed chapter 13, love being actually a fulfillment of the law. Well, now as we turn to chapter 14, Paul is continuing with this theme of love, But now he moves away from just the general exhortations to love one another that he gave in chapters 12 and 13 to some very specific exhortations on how we're to love one another within the body of Christ, within the church in chapter 14. And these are some specific scenarios that that either existed in the church in Rome or Paul saw as a potential for existing in the church at Rome. We, we know that some of these scenarios that he talks about also existed within the church at Corinth, and we're going to see a lot of similarities between his exhortations to the church in Rome and his exhortations to the church in Corinth in his epistles written to them. But it's also, these are also potential scenarios and problems that could exist within the church today. And so let's read this passage. This morning we're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 4, but by way of context, I want to read down through verse 6. This is the Word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for this book that we hold in our hands. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that spoke these words, that breathed out these words through the use of human authors that you spoke through. We thank you, Father, for preserving this book throughout the generations so that we can know that what we hold in our hands is the very breath of God. And we need this, Lord. We are desperate for it. The the body of Christ this morning before me doesn't need my wisdom, doesn't need man's wisdom. We need your wisdom. We need your word. So we are so grateful that we have it. Help us now to understand it. Give us your spirit this morning, Lord, to to comprehend your word and to apply your word. Father, may may you use the truths of this particular passage and this particular chapter in this particular letter to root out division in the body of Christ and to build unity within the body of Christ through what you tell us in this word. We ask this in faith, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
So Paul is speaking here about the one who is weak in faith. He mentions it in verse 1. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The word that's translated there as weak simply means not strong. One who is feeble or infirm in some way. And so Paul is referring to the one whose faith is weak, whose faith is feeble or infirm. It's not a strong faith. Now, in order for us to fully understand what the Apostle Paul is saying, we need to unravel a bit of a translation issue here in the English translations that we hold in our hands. Most English translations, including the ESV that I just read out of, translate Weak in, translate this as weak in faith. That's what they say, weak in faith. But the original text, the Greek original text, doesn't say that. It says weak in the faith. It includes the definite article there, which is desperately important. So it's not saying weak in faith. It is saying weak in the faith. And, and, and I hope you'll see that there is an important distinction between someone who is said to be weak in faith versus, versus someone who is said to be weak in the faith. The definite article is very important there. To be weak in faith refers to someone who might believe something, but they're weak in that belief, right? They, they, don't, they don't have a full assurance of that which they believe in their mind. So there, there is for them a, a lack of robustness in their trust or their faith in their beliefs. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11.1 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so if my assurance of things hoped for or my conviction of things not seen is weak... It's a weak assurance or a weak conviction, then you could say, you would say then, that I have a weak faith, that I am weak in faith. I've used the analogy of a chair before to explain faith. If I say that I have faith in that chair right there to hold the fullness of my body weight, but yet I went to go sit in it and I'm leaning half on the chair and half on my own Uh, legs on the ground, then you would say that my faith in that chair to hold my body weight is weak. I don't have a full assurance in that. In order for me to display full assurance that that chair can hold me up, I would need to pick up my feet and to put all of my body weight on that chair. Then you would say I have full assurance that it will hold me up. That then, then my faith in that chair would be a strong faith. Instead of being a weak faith, as we've said before, a weak faith in Jesus in that sense is not a saving faith. A faith that isn't fully convinced that Jesus died in my place to rescue me from my sin, a faith that, is, that doesn't fully trust in Jesus crucified, buried, and resurrected for me, as my only hope to be forgiven of my sin and reconciled back to God, that kind of faith is not a saving faith. A faith that trusts a little bit in Jesus and a little bit in my works, just to kind of in case, is not saving faith. Saving faith is trusting fully, 100%, in Jesus Christ's life for me, death for me, and resurrection for me, with absolutely no mixture whatsoever of dependence on my own ability to be good and perform for God and be good enough. That kind of faith, without any mixture of trust in my own ability to be good, is known as a strong faith. So we could say that the one who is weak in faith is not really a true Christian, Because they're not fully trusting in Christ alone. But Paul doesn't say weak in faith here. The definite article is desperately important. He says in the original Greek text, weak in the faith. He's not saying weak in faith. He's saying weak in the faith. He's talking about the one who lacks a full understanding of the Christian faith. There is a lack of knowledge for whatever reason 
of the fullness of the Christian teachings, of the full implications of the gospel for daily living. They need to know more so that they can trust Jesus more. It's clear from the context here that he is referring to those who truly are Christians. He says, to those among you who are weak in the faith. They are among you. They are part of the body. They are part of the church. And so these are genuine followers of Christ, but their understanding of the Christian faith, their understanding and, and knowledge of, the, of Christian teaching is not strong. It's, it's lacking. It's deficient in some way. And so it is weak. They need to know more so that they can trust Jesus more and live the kind of life that demonstrates a strength in the faith. So to be weak in the faith is is more about lacking knowledge or a deficiency of understanding about the Christian faith and not whether or not the faith of that individual is genuine or authentic. In fact, as we read through this passage, both in the first six verses that we read, as well as through the remainder of chapter 14, where he talks about the weaker brother and the stronger brother, it is clear that as Paul portrays those who are weak in the faith, he portrays them in a very positive light. He says, welcome them. In other words, be hospitable to them. Welcome them into the family. Welcome them into the community. Receive them as one, of, uh, as one of your own, as a full brother or sister in Christ. Now, he wouldn't say this if being weak in the faith meant in some way that their faith is not genuine or authentic or that they were somehow wolves in sheep clothings. He also says here that those who are strong in the faith are not to despise those who are weak in the faith. In other words, don't look down on them as second-class Christians. In verse 6, we read through verse 6, Paul says, The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to to, to God, and, and vice versa. So, So Paul portrays those who are weak in the faith as being very genuine in their faith. That their desire is to what? Honor the Lord. They want to bring glory to God in how they live. They have a deep thankfulness and gratefulness for God. And they want to to display that thankfulness in living a life that is pure. And so their motives are pure and right and, and good. So the ways in which the weakness of the faith in those who are weak in the faith manifests itself, those manifestations are not manifestations of sin as much as they are simply manifestations of a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding about the faith. So for example, in this passage, when they abstain from meat, and later in chapter 14, when they abstain from drinking wine, their abstinence is not sin. It is, it is, it is for a very good reason. It is to honor the Lord, It is to express thankfulness to God, and so it is not sin. So we we need to, first of all, make sure that we understand what Paul means when he refers to those who are weak in the faith. It's not that they don't have faith. It's not that they're not genuine in their faith, but that they have a deficiency in their understanding and their knowledge of the faith and the implications of the gospel. And for that reason alone, Paul calls it weak. And so we need to consider the cause and effect of being weak in the faith. First of all, what is the cause? Now, there are a number of causes for why someone might be weak in the faith. I want to give four of them to you, but you could come up with a myriad of them on your own. One reason why someone might be weak in the faith is because they're a new believer. They're they're a brand new follower of Christ. They've just come to faith in Christ because when we come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, we begin as an infant. Went to go visit little Olivia Davis in the hospital this week as she was born, first daughter to Ben and Rachel. And she was a little baby, helpless in her little crib there. She couldn't do anything on her own. She was fully a person, just as when we come to faith in Christ, we are fully a Christian. We are in the faith, but we're just a babe. And we need to grow in that faith. So a babe in the faith is still figuring out this Christianity stuff. They're still figuring out the faith. They have a lot to learn about how to grow in the faith. How to navigate, on one hand, the demands of Christ, but on the other hand, the grace of Christ. How do I, how do I navigate that? 
They're growing in that. And so they might be weak in the faith just because they're a new believer. A second reason why they might be weak in the faith is because there's been a lack of discipleship. Maybe they came to faith in Christ years ago. Maybe they came to faith in Christ decades ago. But there was never any growth in Christ. There was no, there was no growth in their faith because they were never discipled. They were never taught the fundamentals of Christianity beyond the simple yet glorious truths of the gospel, which they accepted, which they trusted in. They came to faith in Jesus. They had a simple trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. But then they wondered, what now? And for a variety of reasons, they were never taught what now. And so there's a weakness in their faith. Another cause of being weak in the faith might be just a a misunderstanding of grace. Now, this might come along uh, and be part of a lack of discipleship, but perhaps the person was discipled, but over time, through life circumstances, for whatever reason, they have forgotten some of the implications of the gospel, and now they misunderstand grace. Like the Galatians that Paul wrote to in that letter, after having come to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, they now think it's up to them to sanctify themselves. And they've forgotten that the grace that saves is the same grace that sanctifies. They've stopped trusting, practicing trusting in Jesus Christ for daily living and and instead they think it's up to themselves and now so they've got to perform for God in order to stay in his good graces and they've misunderstood grace and their misunderstanding of grace has led to them to be weak in the faith in these areas and then another way that I want to talk to you about that I think can somehow cause weakness in the faith is things like fear and worry At at their most fundamental level, both fear and worry are a manifestation of a lack of faith in God. When when we worry, we're not trusting God. When, When we are fearful of someone or something or some situation or the future, we're not trusting God with that. When we worry about something, that means that we've assumed the place of God. That we're saying, in essence, it's up to us now. We're putting us on our shoulders, and our shoulders we know are weak, and so we're worried about it. And we're fearful of it. Which results in some of the problems that that Paul is talking about in this passage in the church. So those are some of the causes of one being weak in the faith. And and I'll I'll mention another one that I was just thinking of this morning. Because as I think about some in our church, some of whom we prayed for and others that we didn't mention this morning in, in in our prayers for a variety of reasons, they're going through some serious trials. They're experiencing significant suffering. And to a person, they will tell you that my faith is growing as a result of this. So perhaps, perhaps, church, some of us might find ourselves with a weakness in the faith because we haven't been tried, because we haven't experienced those things in life yet, because it is through those things that our faith in Christ is built. But there could be other reasons, other causes for one being weak in the faith. Now, what is the effect of that? That's the cause. What's the effect of being weak in the faith? Paul tells us that one's weakness in the faith often manifests itself in their interactions with others within the body of Christ. That's where it's seen. It's noticed within the crucible of the body of Christ in the church. He says it's noticed in in the differing opinions that people might have within the church and the potential for those differing opinions to cause division and disunity and quarrels. And by the way, all of chapter 14, even into the first few verses of chapter 15, this is what Paul is going to deal with. Weaker brothers and sisters in Christ in the faith who are weak in the faith to whatever degree 
right alongside brothers and sisters in Christ who are stronger in the faith, that have different opinions about different things, and how they interact within the body of Christ, and the potential for division that that causes, and how to handle that. That's what this whole chapter is all about. And so Paul begins dealing with that in verse 1. He says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And so sometimes those who are weak in the faith will quarrel with those who are strong in the faith and vice versa. And Paul says we're not to quarrel over opinions. The King James Version calls those opinions doubtful disputations. The NIV calls them disputable matters. I like the way Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to them. He, ta- he calls this focusing on what he refers to as morbid scrupulosity. I didn't think scrupulosity was a word. I've heard of scruples. I haven't heard of scrupulosity. And so I looked it up. And not only is it a word, but it is a word that now psychologists use to refer to a kind of religious OCD. Quoting from a 2008 article in the Journal of Anxiety Disorders, scrupulosity is defined as being characterized, listen to this, being characterized by pathological guilt about moral or religious issues. Being characterized by pathological guilt about moral or religious issues. That article goes on to say, scrupulosity is personally distressing, objectively dysfunctional, and often and often accompanied by significant impairment in social functioning. I think that fits well with what the Apostle Paul is warning us about here. That there was quarreling in the church or at least the potential in the church in Rome for quarreling over opinions on matters that were not of primary importance. Things that were disputable matters, things that were doubtful disputations. And the problem was that for some in the church, those that Paul termed as weaker in the faith, these disputable matters were not disputable. They were black and white. They were right or wrong. They were moral or immoral for them. But for others in the body of Christ, they were disputable. Others who Paul termed as strong in the faith viewed these kind of matters with a greater measure of grace. And this caused division and quarrels. So Paul is saying there is a potential here for disunity within the church when those who are weak in the faith Project, project their morbid scrupulosity on those who don't share their morbid scrupulosity. And Paul gives us two examples of these different opinions in the first six verses. In verses 2 through 4, he puts forth the example of dietary opinions. And then in verses 5 and 6, he covers the example of differing opinions regarding the observance of certain days over other days. So this morning, we're going to cover the dietary opinions and then leave the observance of special days for next week. The differences in dietary opinions is expressed beginning in verse 2. He says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So now we're all going to go to Longhorn after, after church today. We're going to get a big old steak, right? So what was at issue here? What was at issue here? was whether one, a Christian, should only eat vegetables, which is what the person who was weaker in the faith believed, or whether it was allowable for the Christian to also eat meat. Now later, as we said in chapter 14, Paul is also going to include drinking wine as a part of these dietary opinions on which there were differences. But for the purposes of verses 1 through 4 this morning, we're just going to focus on whether or not Christians in that setting, in that first century in Rome, should eat meat or not, or should only eat vegetables. The one who was weak in the faith said they should only eat vegetables. The one who was strong in the faith said, yes, it's fine to eat meat. Now again, we must admit here that Paul never questions the motives of the one who says no He never says that their motives are wrong when they say that you you, got to abstain from meat. He doesn't say that their motives are wrong at all. 
Their motives are to honor the Lord. Their, their motives are to, to, to bring glory to God in how they live. They want to be pure for God. They, they are thankful to God for Jesus Christ, and they, and they want to live a life that expresses that thankfulness. And so there's nothing wrong with their motives. Not at all. And for them, they thought for some reason the, the, the eating of meat or the drinking of wine was somehow less honoring to God and less glorifying to God than not eating meat or not drinking wine. They thought that they would be able to bring glory to God better if they abstained from meat and drinking wine than if they consumed them. And furthermore, the problem was not just that they felt this about themselves, but because they believed this about themselves, they also thought that those who did eat meat and did consume wine were somehow dishonoring God. And that they weren't glorifying God as they ought. And so the stage was set, obviously, for quarrels and divisions. So Paul nowhere suggests that their, their reasons, their motives were wrong. But it is clear in this passage that Paul is suggesting that the rationale behind their conclusion that the believer's diet should be limited only to vegetables and they should abstain from drinking wine, that the rationale behind that conclusion is based on misunderstanding, that they were misinformed. It wasn't based on a full understanding of the Christian faith. And this is why they were considered to be weak in the faith. So what was wrong with their understanding about this matter? For some reason, they thought that consuming meat was somehow defiling them and making them less holy and therefore less honoring and glorifying to God. Now, we're not told in this particular passage why they thought that, but we are told in other passages, most particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In that particular passage, Paul was dealing with a specific issue within the church at Corinth where there was this dispute about those who, who were eating food, particularly meat, that had been offered to idols versus those who weren't eating that and didn't partake of that kind of meat offered to idols. So listen to what Paul had to say about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. We have a knowledge, right? That knowledge is that idols aren't real and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called lowercase g gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and, and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here's the key of verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So we see what Paul is doing here. He's, he's equating the one who is weak in the faith with, with a lack of knowledge. They don't, they don't possess the knowledge. What knowledge don't, don't they possess? The knowledge that there is only one God and that these other gods aren't really gods at all. And so eating the meat that has been offered to them doesn't mean that you're participating in idol worship. It just means that you got a bargain at the meat market, Right? Paul corrects their misunderstanding by putting it this way in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising doubts, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, eat anything. Don't raise any objection about that. Don't raise any question about conscience because it, it all comes from the earth and, and it's good. But he says, not everyone has that knowledge. And those who don't have that knowledge because they, they haven't been discipled or because they're a new believer or because they're misunderstanding grace or because they're succumbing to fear and worry or for whatever reason it is, they don't have that knowledge. 
And so when they eat this kind of meat, they become defiled. But not because they eat the meat, but because in eating the meat, they are violating their own conscience. As Paul will say in the very last verse of Romans 14, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. But for them, not only will it be sin because they're violating against their conscience, but in addition to that, this person is also going to be tempted to pass judgment on the one who does eat meat. Why? Because they believe that eating meat is dishonoring to the Lord because it's participating in idol worship in some way. And that is based on a lack of understanding, Paul says. Now, we don't have an issue of concerning ourselves with meat that's been offered to idols. Maybe if you go to Ghana, that might be a concern that you have to think about. But we, that's not typically part of our culture. And so we need to think of maybe an example that would fit better within our culture. And, and the one, to me, that just was obvious, that is the most, the, the, the easiest for us to wrap our minds around, is the, the issue of drinking alcohol. Now, there's lots of contextual and cultural attachments to the, to the concept of drinking alcohol as a Christian in our culture today. But most fundamentally, for the sake of our argument this morning, we should, we should ask ourselves, does the Christian have the freedom to drink alcohol? We know that biblically that the believer in Christ does not have the freedom to abuse alcohol or to to get drunk. That's a clear violation of Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So we're not to be controlled by anything other than the Spirit himself. Anything like alcohol or drugs or even coffee that controls us is not good. But is it okay for Christians to consume alcohol? Some say yes. Some say no. Some say no today. Some might even say no in this room. And, and, and they might not be passing judgment on you verbally, but if they believe in their mind that it's a sin to consume alcohol, then they are passing judgment on you in your mind in their mind. But the question, the real question for us this morning is on what would that kind of prohibition be based on? Not not what are the motives, because the motives might be completely pure. Trying to honor God, trying to live a life that that glorifies God, trying to live a life that expresses my gratefulness for Jesus. So it's not about motives here necessarily. It's about the foundation of that conclusion that that is prohibited for the believer in Christ. We must say that whatever the foundation of that conclusion is, whatever the source for that restriction might be, it is not the Bible. We could even ask, is a believer dishonoring the Lord when they consume alcohol? Some some would say yes. And so they abstain. But not only do they abstain, but they pass judgment on those who don't abstain. But again, the question would be, what is the source of that conclusion that it is dishonoring to the Lord for that believer to consume? Whatever it is, it's no command or verse of Scripture. And so I think we can say that that the one whom Paul calls is weak in the faith who lacks knowledge, that lack of knowledge is is really a lack of knowledge about the scriptures. Or it is a lack of being content to base all of our conclusions on the scriptures. And so that the the opinions that they hold, the, the scruples that they hold, are in fact doubtful disputations because they didn't come from scripture. So that's key. That's, that, that, that's very key here. The weaker brother, as Paul terms him in chapter 14, the weaker brother erects what I, what I might call a supra-biblical boundary. Supra-biblical meaning above and beyond Scripture. It's not in Scripture. 
It's above and beyond Scripture. The Pharisees did this all the time, made up all kinds of, of rules about, about some laws, but they, they went above and beyond that. It was super biblical. And so the, the weaker brother struggles with erecting these super biblical boundaries, prohibitions that the Bible doesn't prohibit, restrictions that the Bible doesn't restrict, or requirements that the Bible doesn't require. So these would be just like the examples that Paul gives here in Romans 14. Eating meat offered to idols, drinking wine, or a number of other examples that you might come up with. But the question is, how do we deal with this in the body of Christ? Because this is a reality. We have have brothers and sisters in Christ who are weaker in the faith, and brothers and sisters in Christ who are stronger in the faith. And, And by the way, that's really relative, isn't it? Weaker and stronger implies a sense of relativity because there are many in this church to whom I am weaker in the faith and there are others in the church to which I am stronger in the faith and we can all place ourselves in that. But the reality is in the body of Christ, we're going to have both of those together and they're going to have differing opinions about matters of secondary importance, matters of disputable or doubtful disputations. And so how do we handle that? How do we deal with the inevitable conflict and division that could arise from this? And, and that's what this chapter is about. And, and Paul in chapter 14 is going to give multiple exhortations to both. Paul is going to exhort in this chapter the weaker brother or sister and what they ought to do or not to do. And he's going to exhort the stronger brother even, even more so later in this chapter, he's going to ex- exhort the stronger brother or sister who's stronger in the faith as to what they ought to do or not to do in these kind of situations. And so we're not going to cover all those this morning. We're going to limit our view this morning to verses 1 through 4. But as we, as we talk about how to handle this inevitable conflict that could arise from having those who are stronger in the faith and weaker in the faith in the body of Christ together, please know that this is not everything. Paul's going to build on this as we go through chapter 14. But from verses 1 through 4, we see here four commands, four imperative verbs on how we're to handle this. And that's followed by three truths that provide a foundation for those commands. So first of all, we need, need to deal with these four commands that tell us what we're to do, and then we're going to understand why we're to do them. And these four commands, the first one is positive, the last three are negative. So one do, three don'ts. The first do is do welcome them. Do welcome them. That word welcome means to receive or to take to oneself, to welcome them in. So the idea is to welcome them into the fellowship, to take them to yourselves, into your community, and into your very lives. The connotation here is is not just to welcome them and tolerate their presence, which is what we so often do, but to fully welcome them into the family, to fully welcome them as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Though they be weak in the faith, though they lack a full understanding of Christian teaching and the implications of the gospel. Let us admit that none of us had all this figured out when God folded us into the flock. None of us had this figured out. And so we ought not to now raise the bar for others any higher than it was raised for us. Instead, we need to welcome them just as they are. What they need from us, what the weaker brother or sister in in the faith needs from us is our love and our grace and our patience, and they need our encouragement, and they need our discipleship if they are going to grow in their understanding of the faith. So welcome them. Secondly, don't quarrel over secondary issues. He says, welcome them. But not to quarrel over these secondary issues. The Greek word that is translated here in the ESV as quarrel literally means to dispute or to judge. And so he's telling us don't get caught up in disputes about matters that are not of primary importance. Disputable matters. Matters that aren't dealt with in scripture in black and white. And I know telling Christians not to argue is like telling the sky not to be blue. But it simply isn't loving. 
It isn't loving. And if Paul has told us anything in chapters 12 and 13, it is we have to love one another. And that's not loving. Neither is it glorifying to God. Neither does it help us in our mission to make disciples of all nations. For us to quarrel over things like whether or not we should drink or whether or not we should dance or, or what kind of clothing is most honoring to God or whether or not Christians should go to see R-rated movies, etc., etc., etc. Don't quarrel over these secondary issues. Second of all, or th- thirdly, but our second don't, is don't despise the weaker brother. Don't despise the weaker brother. That comes from the first part of verse 3. He says, let not the one who eats, so that's the stronger, one who is stronger in the faith, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. In other words, don't despise them. That means to don't consider them with contempt. Don't consider them with contempt. Now let's think for a moment, why might the, the one who is stronger in the faith, who believes that it is freedom to, to eat the meat that's offered to idols, exercising his liberty to do so, why might he despise the one who thinks it is wrong to do so? A couple of different reasons. One, he might despise them simply because of their lack of understanding, because they have an ignorance about the Christian faith. There is a lack of understanding, and so they're despised because of that ignorance. And that's just flat-out pride, is it not? That is flat out pride to despise someone, to look down on them because of their lack of knowledge about something. In fact, in that very same passage that we just read from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul is talking about how the weaker brother is weaker because of a lack of knowledge, right before that, he says this in verse 1 of chapter 8. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And he follows it up with this. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What's he saying? He said, there is a, there is a tendency for that knowledge about the Christian faith to puff up. And we, we, we've seen this, Right? We've experienced this in our own heart. We've seen this in other people, that there is a tendency uh, that, that that knowledge coupled with the remaining sin in our heart can manifest itself in just ugly, nasty pride. And it puffs us up that we have this knowledge that others don't have. And so we despise them and we hold them in contempt. But instead, It is edifying love that welcomes them fully into our lives as a full brother or sister in Christ. That's edifying love, Paul says. But I think there's a second reason why one might despise the one who is weaker in the faith. And that is if the one who is weaker in the faith begins to pass judgment on the one who is stronger in the faith. And so the the, the final don't here, the fourth item here, is don't pass judgment on the stronger brother. Don't pass judgment on the stronger brother. This comes from the second half or the second part of verse 3. First part of verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Second part of verse 3, and let not the one who abstains, that's the weaker brother, pass judgment on the one who eats. So the imperative verb in that part of verse 3 is do not judge. Don't judge them. Don't judge the one who eats and exercises their liberty in Christ. Or to put it in our more contemporary example, don't pass judgment on the one who consumes alcohol. This is why quarrels happen in the church. The the, the stronger brother, the, the one who's stronger in the faith, whose conscience is clear about eating meat offered to idols, despises and looks down on the one who is weaker in the faith, whose conscience is bound to the restriction of not eating meat offered to idol, but they in turn then pass judgment on the one who does eat the meat. And so they quarrel. And their quarreling is not loving to one another, it is not glorifying to God, and it hinders, it hinders our witness to a lost world who is watching us. Now, again, we're going to unpack a lot more practical tips in chapter 14 for both the weaker brother and the stronger brother. But for now, 
Let's heed the advice, the commands. These are imperative verbs in Scripture. Do welcome them. Don't quarrel over secondary issues. Don't despise the weaker brother, and don't pass judgment on the stronger brother. Now, in the remaining two verses that are part of what we're looking at this morning, Paul gives us three truths that kind of undergird those do's and don'ts. Three truths that form a foundation on which these do's and don'ts rely. The first truth is that the foundation of our receiving of others, the foundation of that is Jesus Christ's receiving of us. Listen to the entirety of verse 3. We've we've listened to the first part and the second part, but there is a final part to verse 3 that's desperately important that we don't miss. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. We are to welcome our brother or sister who is weaker in the faith. We are to welcome them on the foundation that Jesus Christ has welcomed us. Paul puts it this way in chapter 15, verse 7, as he concludes this thought. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In other words, you can think of it this way. If my eating of meat offered to idols didn't prevent Jesus from accepting me, then why would that keep you from accepting me? Or or conversely, if my brother or sister who is weaker in the faith, they lack a full understanding of the Christian faith, they lack a full knowledge of all of the implications of the gospel, if that lack of knowledge didn't present didn't prevent God from accepting him or her, then why should that lack of knowledge become a hindrance for me accepting him or her? God has accepted us in Christ. May we then not raise the bar any higher than he did in order to welcome others into our community, into our fellowship, into our lives. So that's the foundation. The foundation of our receiving others, welcoming others, is God's welcoming of us and receiving of us based on Christ and what he did for us. The second truth that undergirds and and, and builds this foundation on which we have these do's and don'ts is that it is God who will judge each person. We get that from the first part of verse 4. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. So whose servant are we and who is our master? It's God, right? Who who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. In other words, it's not our job to judge our neighbor. Now, let me clarify this because Paul's very clear elsewhere that it is our responsibility to confront sin in our brother or sister in Christ, right? So he's not saying don't confront sin in your brother or sister in Christ because God uses the community of believers to conform us to the image of Christ as he sanctifies us and makes us holy and makes us look more like Jesus. And so we are to confront sin in one another. So he's not saying don't confront sin in your brother or sister, but it does mean that in these disputable matters, in these matters of morbid scrupulosity, don't worry Don't take it upon yourself to try to determine if your brother or sister is being holy or or more holy or or, or holy enough by engaging in this particular activity or not engaging in this particular activity. That's not your job. That's not my job. It's God's job. In those matters, it is not our job to judge. It is the Lord's. And so just trust the Lord. Trust that God's got them and that God will hold them and each of us accountable for our very own lives. And then thirdly, and this follows directly on from that, not only is it God who will judge each believer, but 
God will make each believer be able to stand in that judgment. This comes from the second part, the end of verse 4. It says, first of all, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. That believer, that one that you're looking down on for whatever reason, the one that you're passing judgment on for whatever reason, that believer, if he is a believer in Christ, he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. You see, because of Christ. Because of his sacrificial death on on, on our behalf, because of his perfect, righteous living on our behalf, because of Jesus Christ, every believer in Christ, every person who has been saved by grace through faith will stand in the judgment and will not be cast down. And this is glorious news because because we are robed with the righteousness of Jesus and not the filthy rags of our own attempts of righteousness, but because we're robed with his perfect life and his perfect fulfilling of the law and his perfect righteousness because that is what we wear and that's that's the robe that will be around us when we come before God and we stand before him in judgment, then even the brother who is the weakest among us in the faith and even the brother who is the most prideful and the most self-centered among us in the faith and the most puffed up in the faith will stand vindicated and loved and forgiven and righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus in that judgment. So let us welcome one another. Let's, let's receive one another fully as brothers and sisters into the faith. And let us not quarrel and despise one another and pass judgment on one another in these matters of secondary issues. Why? Because God has received us in Christ. And because it is God to whom we will all give an account, not to one another. And in that judgment where we will give an account, we who are in Christ will stand righteous because of his righteousness that has been injected into us by faith. Let's pray.